All right, you're the diehard people because you didn't allow an extra or one less ex, one less hour of sleep to keep you from being here today. So give yourselves a hand. You know, that was kind of weird. So we usually don't do that. But anyway, so we're glad you're here. Hey, uh, just a quick question for you. Um, have you ever been baptized before? And some of you would say, no, I haven't. And so this is my question for you. Why not? So in a couple of weeks on April 2nd, I'll be teaching a baptism class. And sometimes what happens is many people get kind of confused about baptism. They think, oh, I have to get my life all together first and then I can get baptized. And it's actually the other way around. Because my life is not together, I want Christ to come and to help me so that I get a clean slate. And that's what baptism is about, is getting a clean slate and a new life. And so uh, if you've never been baptized before, I'd strongly encourage you to think about it. And there's a couple different ways that you can sign up for that. You can go on your phone uh, at our JAR app, and if you just uh, push the sign-up sheet, there'll be a place there where you can uh, sign up. It says, uh, I want to be baptized. You just click on that, put your name in. And you can do that. Or also at the resource table, uh, you can go and you can sign up there as well. And uh, if you do that, um, that would be awesome. And during the teaching, if you get bored, because I've already done this once, and uh, there are a couple places, honestly, that you know you might decide, I need to look at my phone. Just sign up for the baptism app, okay? Uh, that'll do that. That'll make me feel like you're actually... You know, taking notes or something like that, so it'd be better. Okay, well, let me begin by saying this. You would not believe what kind of week I've had. This might go down as the best week of my life. There is so many wonderful things that have happened, but one thing in particular, that it may be the most memorable moment of our entire church, of our family, of the bunch name in general. And what happened was, I went online to www.pch.com, which is publishersclearinghouse.com. And I put my name in there. And when I did that, they sent me some information that most of you do not have. But you're going to want to know me pretty soon. And what I did was I applied and this is what they told me. They said, you have been identified as the mystery winner of the, do you, uh, do you want to be, uh, wait, that's not it. Do you want to be set for life contest? And I, I'm one of these people that has been hand selected to be set for life. And folks, I don't want to boast about it, but I mean, I printed it off. I've got these pages that are right here. They're basically saying this. In fact, there's one page right here. It says, uh, you have been positively identified. I've been identified as potential. This is what it said. Christopher Bunch, you please come forward. You have been positively identified to be set for life with the $7,000 gift each week for the rest of your life. Seven grand the rest of my life. Now, folks, this is serious business, okay? 
Don't try to storm the stage right now and try to get this from me, okay? Because this right here, if you took it from me, it's two years in prison and a $5,000 fine. So don't try to come up here and take this away from me because I have been positively identified. And so I haven't collected on it yet because on April 28th, NBC, it'll be live TV where I will be introduced as that winner. And... I've started thinking about what I'm going to do. Like, what does this $7,000 a week look like? Well, $7,000 a week actually comes down to being $364,000 a year. And I know because I'm such a good guy, I'm going to live at least another 40 years. And by the end of my life, I will have $15 million that are coming my way. But I thought, you know what, I, t- I teach all the time about this 10-10-80 principle. You know, you give 10% to God, save 10%, and then give the 80, you know, to live off of. So I'm going to come through, and $3,000 a month I'm going to give to the church as a tithe. And just for some of you that were wondering, it's on the gross, okay? I'm tithing on the gross for that. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to pass out some more because I want to be generous. So I'm going to give $2,000 a month to the Muncie Mission. I'm going to give $2,000 a month to a missionary, $2,000 a month to Morningstar Breadbasket. And then I'm going to do something that I have never done in my life before. I'm actually going to give... $500 to the Republican National Party, $500 to the Democrat National Party. And I've thought that libertarians have been set aside for a while, so I'm giving $500 to the libertarians as well. I'm just going to spread it all over the place, folks. I'm going to be the picture of generosity. And I'm going to even be generous to some of you. All of you who've ever sent me a nice, encouraging email... I'm going to give you something. Now, if you haven't sent me a nice, encouraging email, you don't get squat, okay? But uh, if you did, I'm going to give something away there. And again, folks, this is not a hoax. Publishers Clearinghouse has given money away away like this before. They're going to knock on my door. And just so you know, April 28th, put it on NBC because this is what you'll see. Now, you know what you call what I just talked about for the next, for the last three or four minutes? We can't say it. Don't say bad words, okay? We're in church today. You know what that's called? Nonsense. All that I just talked about is nonsense. And folks, what else is nonsense? Is if a person ever comes up to you and they say, you know what, I'm going to be a generous person once I get some more money. If I just kind of, you know, double my salary, then I'm going to be generous and I'll give to the church, I'll give to organizations, I'll give to the poor, I'll do everything once I get more. Folks, the oldest and biggest lie about generosity and it's your first fill-in is this. The biggest lie is this. It says, when a person says, if I had more, I would be more generous. If I just had more, I would be more generous. Jesus said this, your heart will always be where your treasure is. So whatever you're excited about, whatever you're passionate about, whatever fires you up, I guarantee there is a trail of money that goes that way. 
Because generosity, folks, when it comes down to it, is not a matter of your wallet or your purse, but it's a matter of the heart. Jesus was fond of saying this, whoever can be treated or whoever can be trusted, who can ever be faithful with a very little, if you can be trusted with a little, can also be trusted, can also be thankful and faithful with much. You see, this is the thing about Jesus. He doesn't care if you're lower class, middle class, upper class, or no class. This is all he says. That if you will come to me and you're generous with what you have, I will bless your life. He is pleased every time that we're generous, regardless of whatever we give. But don't believe the honking line that says, if I had more, then I would be more generous. Because it's not true. Because it's not a matter of how much money's in your bank account or your purse or your wallet. It's about your heart. In fact, I know some people who live on a fixed income, who live on disability, and they're some of the most generous people I know. Sometimes I wonder how they make it. And then there are other people that I know that make six figures and have all kinds of big stuff. And they're some of the most tight-fisted and stingy people that I know. Now, the reality is, is that every single world religion would tell you that generosity is a part of their values. In fact, pretty much everybody never sits around and goes, oh, generosity, it's a bad thing. It's just a bad thing. No, everybody would say, no, generosity, it's actually a good thing. So my question for you this morning is, are you growing stronger in generosity? It's a question I've been asking myself this week. Am I growing stronger in generosity? So for the rest of our time, what I want us to do is I want us to look at three stories in Scripture that talk about how we can grow stronger in generosity. Stories that will help us to understand this more. The first story is about a single mom. This single mom uh, has a home, but famine, a famine comes and it wipes out all the food in the country. And so this single mom now has no food and she has no money to buy anything. The only thing that she has left are two jars, one of flour and one of oil to be able to make one loaf of bread. And then she has one more thing that's most precious to her. She has a son. And one day she comes to the realization, we're going to die. Because I only have enough flour and I only have enough oil to make one loaf of bread. And so this is her plan. She decides that she's going to take the flour, take the oil, put it together, make a loaf of bread. She and her son will eat it together. They will hold on to each other and then they'll die. And so that's the deal. But not too far away, there is a prophet or a pastor, a guy by the name of Elijah. And he's been powerfully used by God in the past, but he too has been affected by the famine. You see, this is the thing about circumstances when they hit your life. No matter how spiritual you are or aren't, all of the circumstances hit us the same way. How we respond to them shows our character. So Elijah's been hit by this famine as well. And so God comes to him and tells this 
man of God says, hey, you know what you need to do is you need to go to this particular city and knock on the door of this single mom who has a son. And when you get there, just tell them I'm moving in. Now, single moms, don't raise your hand right now. But if you're a single mom, how many boyfriends or exes or deadbeat dads have ever said, I want to move in? And this is what this particular woman is facing. And Elijah, being a man of God, she's like, I don't care who you are. What are you talking about? Now back to the story. Elijah says this, not only am I going to move in, but one more thing. Uh, I see that you have just this last jar of flour and last jar of oil. You're going to make a loaf of bread and you're going to feed me first. From those empty jars, you're going to do that. But if you feed me first, God has told me that he's going to resupply what you have. And if you feed me first, God's going to resupply all the flour, all the oil that you have. So I'm going to go wash up for dinner. You go ahead, get the stove ready, and I'll be back. And I'll look forward to eating my freshly baked loaf of bread. Now, time out for just a second. How, what would you do if you were that woman? Some of you are having some bad thoughts right now, I can tell. What would you do? Well, I was thinking about it. If it was my wife, uh, this is what I think she would sing to the man. Mama said, knock you out. Mama said, knock you out. I think she would knock him out, drag him out of her house and say, you are done. That's what I think my wife would do. And I'm sure this woman is thinking, this is crazy. What is he talking about? I've only got enough left to actually feed my son and I, and then we're going to die. And this guy has the gall to come in and say, hey, uh, you know what? Uh, what I'd like you to do is bake this and give it to me first. But if you do it, God will resupply all of your needs. And I'm sure she's thinking, how do I know for sure God's going to do that? I mean, there's a lot of people out there with religious talk that tell things about God. And so how do I know that the prophet is saying the truth, that he will resupply my needs? Folks, you know, in a way, every single one of us in this gym this morning are in the same shoes. Every time we're moved by God to act in a generous way. When we're moved to give a gift to the poor, when we're moved to help somebody out, when we're moved to give our tithe, when we're moved to do something sacrificial, there's always this tap that's on our shoulder from God's Spirit to do something generous, but then we wonder, does God have my back? If I actually do this, does He have my back? Will He see this honor and expression of generosity? Will He resupply my need? And let me say this, folks, how you answer that question, does God have my back? Will he resupply? How you answer that question determines how faithful and generous you'll be for the rest of your life. Because if God has your back, folks, and you believe in his promise that he's going to resupply your need, 
then why wouldn't you be generous? But the reality is, I struggle with this, I bet you do as well, that sometimes we're not as sure. And I've only found that as I've gone through my spiritual walk longer, am I more sure about that. But if you're new in your spiritual walk, if you're here for the first time, if you're just kind of connecting with God, you don't have enough history to be able to see that God has actually provided for whatever that is. And so, of course, you might be thinking, I'm kind of nervous about this. I mean, every time I move to generosity, you see, each time that we get a prompting from the Holy Spirit, this is what we go. This is going to cost me. This is going to cost me something, and I'm not sure if I'll ever get repaid. I'm not sure if God will resupply my need. So what happens? We hold things tightly. During the time that my wife Jennifer and I were engaged, my uh, mom, during this time, she had a cousin who had died and As a part of the inheritance, my mom actually got a third of everything that her cousin had. And uh, her cousin had a car that nobody wanted, and so uh, the family uh, decided to gift it to my wife Jennifer and I. It was a 1980 Buick Skylark. There's one right there. 1980 Buick Skylark. And the car that I was driving at that time was a 1979 Pontiac Grand Prix. And I thought I was the stuff. I would put my hand on the wheel like this. I had a system on. Be going, bop, 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 you know. I'm like, yeah, I'm engaged. She's going to be a doctor too, you know. And uh, hey, I'm the stuff. And so I had this car. But Jen and I talked and we're like, you know, the wise thing to do is that we actually, we take the Skylark and we sell the Grand Prix. And then we were going on a honeymoon. We didn't have enough money to do all the kind of extra stuff in this honeymoon. And so we're like, we'll use that money and then we'll do all the extras. Well, during the same time, there was a, a young teenage girl in the church that I was pastoring named Jessica, who recently had had a little baby. She was not married, and the husband, or the, uh, the uh, guy, wanted nothing to do with her or with the baby. So her aunt and uncle decided that they would take Jessica in, and into their house, and they took her and the baby in, but the problem was is that Jessica didn't have any transportation. And it was during this time that God was working on my heart because I'm a recovering tightwad at that time. I'm still recovering. That he was teaching me about how to be more generous and giving with what I had. And I feel this prompting, uh, not audibly, but just in my spirit that says, give Jessica the car. And I was like, God, did you mean sell Jessica the car? Is that what you... I think I must have got it messed up in translation. You meant to sell her this car. Like, give her a deal, but sell it. And I felt this from, you know, give her the car. Give it away. So we gave the car to Jessica, and it drove away. And as it was driving away, I was like, 
man, my honeymoon just went down the tube, you know. This thing is not going to work out very well. And then remarkably, over the next six months, God gave me several different speaking engagements that paid more than what I would have ever gotten had I sold the car. And it was the first time in my life, folks, where God moved on the backside of generosity and my world was rocked. Because a lot of times people who are drawing closer to God and they act in generosity, they have a story of what God did, but I had no story. God had never blessed me in that particular way. And now all of a sudden it rocked my world. Now this is something that I think is important for me to say. Just because you're generous does not mean that God is going to always be generous in financial means to you. You know, name it and claim it kind of theology. I name it and I'm going to claim it. That, that, that doesn't mean that. But the blessing that he gives to you will always come. And sometimes it comes in ways like this. And so since that time, there have been two passages of scriptures that have always kind of held strong to me when it comes to this idea of generosity. And the first one is in Philippians 4.19. It says this. And my God shall supply, what's it say? All? Wait, just some, right? Just some? No, no, no. All your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And then a second one is in Matthew 6.33 in which Jesus says this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, pick me first. Choose me. Seek me first. And all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says, trust me. And I'll supply. And that's the reason why I tithe. Because I've never had the struggle of not knowing that God continues to resupply when I give. Last year, our uh, small group decided to do a study called Simplify. Uh, those of you that aren't in a small group, you should get into a small group. You should just try it out. Try it out for a few weeks. If you don't like it after that, then find another one. Okay? Not all the groups have weird people in it, like me. I mean, we have some normal groups, okay? So try one out. Try it out for a little bit. Maybe before Easter. You're like, God, uh, before Easter, I'm going to try something out. You could do that. And so our small group had this study called Simplify, where it was talking about simplifying your life so that you could have better balance and you could stop living at such a frenetic pace. And in one of these particular sessions, Bill Hybels, who uh, wrote this, he, he talks about simplifying your finances. And Bill talks about two types of idiots when it comes to finances. That's another reason why you should join a small group. You can tell other people, idiot, you know, uh, just joking, okay? Just joke, don't send me any emails. Okay, but this word idiot can get people in trouble, but the reality is these two groups of people that I'm going to talk about both think the other is an idiot. So one thinks one is and one thinks the other is, and Bill talks about this. He said there is one group who believes that when it comes to their finances of going from A to B, that if they're going to actually get from A to B, 
They need 100% of their finances. And then there is a second group that for them to get from A to B, what they say is that it only takes 90%. And the first 10% is a gift given to God as a first fruit. And amazingly, what these people think in group two is that if they go from A to B with 90%, that God eventually takes them into uncharted waters to a point called C. But this is what happens. Group one, who needs 100%, looks at group two, who's only going to take 90 and then they're going to get 10 of it away, and they go, ha, ha, ha. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. You really believe that if you do this, that God's going to do, wah, 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 really, you're an idiot. And then the second group really believes that if they only live off of 90% and they give it away, they think the other person, they're like, you're an idiot. I mean, You've never seen God do something? I mean, you can sing and pray and you can do everything, but when it comes to your money, you're like, ah, I'm going to hold it back. You're an idiot. What are you talking about? He can take you to see. So this morning, I want to ask you a question. What type of idiot are you going to be? Now, my life, since I was 27 years old, I have been a group two kind of idiot. I just decided that to get to A to B, I only needed 90%. And God has taken and expressed so many times in C that you'd never believe. So, again, the question, what kind of idiot are you going to be? Now, back to our story. So, Elijah's like washing up his hands. He's getting all ready for this baked bread that he's looking forward to. And... uh, the woman is in there and she's like, oh, I got this one jar and I got this other jar. This is it. And we're going to die anyway. So maybe I should just go for it. And I'm going to die one way or the other. But maybe God would supply. Maybe the prophet's right. And so she takes the little bit that she has, the little bit, and she puts it together. And she makes this baked bread. And she brings it out to Elijah. And she goes, here, buddy. Hope you like it. This is it. This is all there is. There is no more. Hope you enjoy this. And so then she goes back to the kitchen. And when she gets in the kitchen, she looks up at the jars and they're full. They're full. And she's like, whoa. She's like, well, I don't want my son to die on an empty stomach. So she goes and she makes a little bit of bread for him and she gets it all ready, heats it up. And, you know, if you have a teenage boy or any boy of any age, you know how much they eat. And so they bring it to him and he like wolfs it down. He's like, ah, and she's like, well, that's it. And she goes back to the kitchen. She looks up again in these jars. They're full again. She's like, wow. It's like, well, I better make something for me real quick, too. You know, I'm going to prophet got something. My son got something. I'll get something. I'll put it together. Put it together. Puts it all together. She goes out, eats at the table. She's like, ah, she goes back in again. It's full again. And this is what scripture tells us. 
for the rest of the famine that took place in that country during that time, all three of them always had bread to take care of them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. They just had bread? They didn't die, folks. They didn't die. So this week, I challenge you to read 1 Kings 17, that story that I just shared, and allow God to move you in the midst of that. Folks, if you believe the promise of God that He's able to resupply, then it moves us toward generosity. You get stronger in generosity. Second story. There's a guy named David who becomes a king, and he's from that David and Goliath, so the big giant, and this young little guy, and this guy eventually becomes king. And in the midst of that, he says, I'm going to give all my life to God. And early on in his life, he, he gives everything to God. He honors him with everything. He's obedient in every single way. He's the only person in the entire Bible who's called a man after God's own heart. He becomes a leader, a politician, an artist, a poet. He becomes a warrior. He, he is big man on campus. Everybody in the world knows him and how famous he is. In fact, during this time, it was called the golden era because everything that David touched turned to gold. And David knew that all of the success that he had had was due from God's hands. But when he got older and he got a little bit more wealthy and he got more power under him, all of a sudden, David started changing the story about who was the main character of the story. And he started telling it a little different. And so when people would come up to him and say, Hey, David, how did you ascend to such heights of success? He would say, Well, I'll tell you how it happened. I started young, and I was faster, and I was stronger, and I was smarter than everybody else. And if there were doors that didn't open up for me, I just knocked them down. And what David had forgot was that every door that had ever been opened in his life had been because of God. And then he'd go on to say, you know, I worked really hard. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I made it. And then one day, David goes to one of his childhood friends who had become general of the army. And he turns to him and he says, I want you to go out and I want you to count how big and great our army is now. How many people are in there? And his general looks back at David and goes, Ah, David, don't do that. Don't do that. You want the number. You want this particular number so that you can go out and you can tell all of your foreign kings about how big you are and how big the army is and you want to brag about that. But the general said, David, I'm I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. We've known each other since childhood. Please don't do this. Because I know the only reason you're doing this is because you want to show how great you are and how powerful you are. And don't you remember, David? Don't you remember? Like, we used to have nothing. And then God came into our life and he supplied things that we never thought. And he blessed us and he gave us favor and he took care of our needs. 
David, don't go down this road of arrogance. Don't do this. Please, I'm begging you, don't do this. And David looked at one of his best friends. He goes, number the troops. And so the general goes out. He gets account of all the different troops. And then he comes back. And then David is given the number by the general. I don't know about you, but when I was in my 20s, and some of you are in your 20s right now, life was hard. And I had virtually nothing. I drove crappy cars like I just showed up there. I had uh, hand-me-down kind of stuff to wear. And until I met my wife, it was just like a series of bad dates after bad dates after bad dates. And people wore mullets during that time because you're in your 20s and life just isn't all that great. It's not working out. But then all of a sudden, when I hit my 30s, God started opening up some doors because I had had some time. And all of a sudden, doors started opening. And then all of a sudden, I was like, well, maybe, God, you would open more. And he got me connected to different people. And those people actually started opening doors. And all along the way, you know, you're giving God credit. But what happens sometimes is you get so big that you start thinking it's about you. I'll never forget when we finally hit 200 people. And I was like, look what I did. Look what I did. And God humbled me and he disciplined me so much. Everything that happens in the jar, when it comes to growth, folks, it's about what God does in people's lives. It has nothing to do with me. It's all about a generous God who looks down on a group of people and he loves them no matter what. And he wants people to be drawn into a place where everyone is loved and accepted as is. But what happens sometimes, if you're not careful, is once you start getting some success, all of a sudden, you forget about God and you think, well, God's not as responsible for this as what I am. So David's general comes back in and he says, here's your number. At one point they had zero troops. Now they have 1.3 million troops. He goes, we have 800,000 in Israel. We have 500,000 in Judah. Here's your number. 1,300,000. Brag about it. Go ahead. And all of a sudden, it was in that moment when he heard the number, David was like, ah. And he realized that he was driven by a number and not driven by God. And he realized the terrible thing that had happened and God disciplined him just like God has disciplined me and maybe you as well. But for David, it was really, really severe. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel 24 if you want this week. But David finally comes to his senses and he goes, ah, I got to repent. I got to say I'm sorry to God. And so back in those days, the way you did that is You actually went, you would buy a plot of land, you would make an altar out of stone, and then you would put an animal on that stone as a sacrifice, kill it for the sins that you have committed toward God. And the idea was then that every time that you would pass that altar after that, every time you would see the group of stones, you'd be like, ah, I remember. 
And I don't want to forget that because God was so faithful to forgive me during that time and I don't want to make that same mistake again. So David's getting ready to go out to this field to buy it and to build an altar and a rich guy comes up to him and says, Hey, 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 King David! Hey, you don't need to buy a plot of land. I got a great plot of land and I have these guys that will build it just for you. They'll build whatever you need. They'll build the altar. And we've got an extra cattle here and we'll give that to you. Don't get your kingly hands like all messed up. We'll take care of it. We'll give it all to you. So David thinks about it for a second. He's like, nah, nah, I'll buy the land. And I'm going to get my hands dirty and I'm going to build the altar myself. And then I'm going to take a cattle from my livestock and I'll put it on there. No, 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 no. I got this. And then he says the big line. It'll come up on the side screens. David says, I'm not going to make a sacrifice to God. And then what's it say? That costs me nothing. Folks, in that moment, David recaptured his integrity. He recaptured his humility. And he realized that everything that he had... Everything came from the hands of a generous God who loved him. And he was now going to repent of his arrogance and he wanted to make sure that it was his gift and that it cost him something. And he knew deep down, just like you and I and every single person in this gym know deep down, which is the truth about generosity. When it comes about generosity, it's this. And this is your last fill-in. Expressions of generosity reveal the true condition of the heart. Expressions of generosity reveal the true condition of your heart. Now, early on in my marriage, uh, I learned this the hard way. I, I've shared with you before that I pastored two small little country churches and In the first two years, the average age of the churches was 70 years old. So the first two years, I officiated at 30 funerals. And in this small little uh, community, what they would do is, uh, whenever there was a funeral, they wanted to honor the pastor as well. So they would take some of the flowers and they would put it together and they would give it to the pastor to say, Hey, thanks. Now, during the same time, uh, Jennifer was living here in Muncie. I was living near Lafayette, Indiana, so it was about two hours away. We only saw each other on weekends, if that. And one particular weekend, I had a funeral that Friday. They gave me some uh, flowers. I had this beautiful bouquet of flowers. I'm like, I'm going to take this to Jen. So I go all the way here to Muncie. I walk in, I'm like... Hey, babe, I just wanted you to know I love you. It's our first year of marriage. Here's some flowers. And she looks at these flowers. She's like, whoa. It's like, that is so nice. That's so great. And then she asked the question that I'll hate the rest of my life. She goes, where'd you get them at? <laughs> and so I said, well, well I, where I got them was, you know, somewhere 
over, you know, near Lafayette. Don't worry about it. But aren't these beautiful? Look at these flowers. She's like, oh, they are. They're great. I might want to get it. Where'd you get them at? And because I was a pastor, I wanted to lie. (laughs) But I knew I had to come clean. And I said, well, you will not believe the deal I got on these. These didn't cost me anything. She's like, no. I'm like, no, they didn't cost me anything. They're funeral flowers. And she's like, uh, okay. And I was like, but they didn't cost us anything. Look, they're funeral flowers. She's like, oh, great. (laughs) Now, do you think I only did that once? (laughs) I'm a recovering tightwad, man. It's free flowers, you know. So I would keep bringing these flowers to her and I'd say, look at these, uh, they're funeral flowers. And at first she was like, oh, that's nice. But you know, the longer you get married, all of a sudden that kind of honeymoon breaks down. And she's like, oh, okay. And then I knew I finally had reached my limit when one time I found that the flowers didn't even last the night. They were in the trash the next morning. So this is what I've learned. Don't give your wife funeral flowers. You know why? Because flowers reveal the, fl- reveal the value of the other person. Flowers that you buy for someone reveal the value of the other person. Gifts reveal your heart. Folks, every time you give something to God, it's either fresh cut flowers that you have to give or it's funeral flowers. And he knows when we're stingy. He knows when we're tight-fisted. He knows when we're just giving our leftovers. He also knows also, folks, when we go and we have to sacrifice to get whatever that is. And he knows when we say, everything's yours, God, but I want to be generous to you because you've been so generous to me. And Scripture tells us that when we do that, that He opens up heaven and He pours down His blessings and His favor into our life. Let me say it again, folks. Don't give God funeral flowers. A couple years after 9-11, Jennifer and I were able to go to uh, New York City on vacation and in one place, they hadn't, you know, built everything that's there now, but in one place they had a memorial for all the policemen, firemen, and rescue workers who had lost their lives by trying to help others, who ran in to try to help. And I noticed that when we went up there, there were people that were pointing at different names that were on this particular memorial. And they were leaving flowers for different folks. There were just piles and piles. And you could hear people say, ah, this person gave their life for my family. And you'd hear people say, oh, he went back in. And it was, it was such a powerful moment as Jennifer and I sat there on ground zero seeing these people who had given their life for someone else. 
And I'll never forget thinking that I would have responded the same way if it would have been a friend of mine, if it would have been a family member of mine or something, that I would have wanted to give flowers or I would have wanted to say a prayer or I would have wanted to thank the person or I would have wanted to think and pause for a moment. And you know, folks, when people give their life for something, it demands a response. And the Bible has one for us. It says this, For God so loved the world that He, what? He gave. His one and only Son. And that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Last story. One day God's in heaven with all the angelic beings and his son. And finally he looks to his son and he says, it's time. He's like, oh, dad, I've been, I've been waiting on this. And he sends his one and only son downstairs from heaven to earth. And as God looks down at the world, though, he notices how corrupt it is and how men and women have turned their backs on God. And God could have turned his back on us, but he didn't. In fact, he loved you so much, and he loved you so much, and he loved you so much, and he loved you so much, that he sent the most generous gift that he could give to the entire world. He gave his one and only son for you. Not to condemn you, not to put you down, not to say what bad things you've done, but to pay the penalty for every sin that you've ever committed or will commit in your life. And it leads to the story of all stories. Jesus is arrested, beaten, tortured. He's carrying a cross, your cross, my cross, and as they get to the hill of Golgotha, as they lay the cross down, Jesus does something very, very powerful. He doesn't hold tight fist as he stretches his arms out. Even to the point of being broken, he says, I'll open my hands for them. And he willingly takes the nail. Here, I'll take the nail. Jesus said this, No one takes my life from me. I give it up, what's it say? Willingly. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life for you and you and you and you. He gave up his one and only life. And he did it lovingly and he did it willingly. And once you understand that, once you realize that God has done that for you, not only are you willing to say, God, you can have my heart, but you actually begin to start saying, God, I want to open up my hands for you. And you open up your hands in praise and you worship him and you open up your hands in surrender, saying, God, I surrender everything to you. And you open up your hands to give generously to other people. Friends surrounding us 
are communion tables. Each of these tables are not the jars tables, they're Jesus' tables. And if you have a relationship with him or you want a relationship with him today, he generously stands there to say, I want you to remember what I did for you, that he generously will give to you. And maybe some of you are hurting right now. Some of you have done some stuff. Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was this week. Maybe it was something that you just feel shame and guilt from your past. But today, you could say, Jesus, would you please forgive me? And he says, absolutely. I already have. Because when he went to the cross, folks, he opened up his hands willingly, voluntarily, so that you would not have to carry any guilt any shame anymore. So I'd like to give you a moment right now, if you would, just to close your eyes. And if you're not really sure about this whole God thing, just take a moment to meditate. But if you have a relationship with God or you want one today, that you would just take a moment and say... Generous God, thank you for giving your one and only son so I don't have to carry any of my past sin, anything that separates me from you. So if you would, just take a moment to confess any sin, and then I'll close this in prayer.